0: Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsnetwork.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing
1: complete, please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ.
2: Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University Talking Technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schurz. And I'm Jim Russ. And there's more ransomware out there. Another Florida city paid for to get their computers back. Really? It's just going city by city by city. Google has a new, Google Maps has a new feature where they'll track your speed and keep a history of it. Mm-hmm. So in case you're in a radar trap and the radar is incorrect, you actually have some evidence of the speed you were going. Wow. So that would be an interesting thing to do. Uh, Russia denies. Jamming the GPS systems in Israeli airports. Russians are very good at jamming GPS, <laughs> and this—so many of our systems depend on GPS—that that, uh, that is—that's really a form of electronic warfare that's going to become more and more important. And uh, the Chinese are, are are up to their hacking tricks, hacking uh, ha- global attacks on telcos across the, the the area. Now, there's also something interesting. There's the first practical. Electric um, aircraft that's used for regional flights. It has it has a range of 650 miles, and it looks like it's going to be a great option for regional air carriers. Interesting. So, <laughs> don't
3: know if I want to be one of the test pilots on that. Though.
2: On that one, you don't want you don't want the batteries to go down. And yeah. this week we're going to feature the woman who uh, who basically developed. The first risk processor, and that turned in, and that was evolved into an ARM processor. And the ARM processors are in 95% of all the cell phones. Huh. And I'll explain what all that means when I when I get to the uh, segment. You'll and of to. course, I'm lost. It was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from David in North Carolina. Dear Doc and Jim, I just Bart bought, bought a smartphone that supports wireless charging. I'm planning to buy a wireless charger soon. Are there any technical specs that I should be watching for? Love the show, David in North Carolina. Well, David, there are more and more phones are going to wireless charging, and the, the good news is the wireless charging industry has consolidated around one standard, which is really important. So when you buy a charger, make certain that it is QI certified. Now, QI is pronounced Qi. Make certain it's pronounced Qi certified. And that's the new standard for wireless energy transmission. It's a format that is maintained by the Wireless Power Consortium. And these guys consolidate a lot of different wireless charging technologies and and, and, and then and ended up with this one. And it uh, so that there'll be one standard across all devices. Now you can still buy wireless charging systems that don't support the Qi standard, but don't buy them. <laughs> okay, when a phone or charger is Qi. Certified, that means it's been tested by the Wireless Power Consortium for Safety, Effectiveness, and Compatibility. Now, wireless chargers rely on magnetic induction as well as magnetic resonance to transmit energy. Qi uses both. Now, your phone contains a coil in its back that converts the magnetic energy into electrical energy, and that's used to charge the battery. Now, if a wireless charger is not Qi certified, Uh, As I said, you should avoid using it. Now, Qi-certified chargers are available from Anchor, from Chotech, and Yotech. Now, for instance, a Qi-certified charger from Chotech, C-H-O-E-T-E-C-H, that charges at at the rate of 15 watts is only $25.49 on Amazon. So they're not really that expensive. So it's a good question, and uh, I'm glad you're keeping track of those standards. We got an email from Anna in Kilmarnock. Dear Tech Talk, a few days ago, I got a text message from Microsoft saying that my computer has a virus and I need to delete the System32 file, but I can't find it anywhere. I've looked everywhere. I texted them back and asked them how I do that, and I haven't heard back from them. Can can you tell me how to find the System32 file so I can delete it? Anna in Kilmarnock. Anna, you don't have to delete anything because that text message you received is a hoax. It was sent by a scammer, not by Microsoft. You couldn't find System 32 files on your program because to delete because Microsoft hid them because they didn't want the user to muck around with system files. Now, if you did manage to find that file and delete it, you would end up completely trashing your Windows installation. Wow! Now, luckily, Microsoft made it hard to find the file, and you didn't delete it. Uh, but uh, just don't listen to any email that comes to you because it could be a scam we got an email from helen in rockville dildoc and jim i've been shopping for a new laptop and have noticed that most of the better ones do not come with optical drives i got hundreds of cds and dvds that are filled with photos and i and i need to access them on occasion uh so i'd like my new laptop to have a dvd drive now I know I can buy an external D- DVD drive, but I prefer to have it built in. W- why are they making laptops without optical drives? Doesn't make sense to me. Helen in in um, Rockville. Well, there are several reasons why they've gotten rid of uh, including them in laptops. First of all, they're not used that much anymore. Most music, movies, computer software are delivered to the consumer over the internet instead of by disc. Right. So there's you you you. you Rarely, you never get any uh, software delivered on um, on DVDs. In addition, uh, there are many inexpensive USB hard drives that, and and online backup services, so it makes it very easy to back up your data on your computer. See, remember in the old days, people do backups on the DVDs. Yep, I mean that just is not happening anymore. So you know, I cloud backups and. Using a USB hard drive because you can get a one terabyte USB hard drive that's really you know not that expensive, let's you know about a hundred dollars, and you can you can back up everything. In addition, you know people used to share photos uh, on DVDs, but now with all this cloud uh, you know cloud storage uh, capacity, you can just upload your photos to the cloud and you can share them. And you don't actually have to ship around the CD now. The final reason they got rid of them is making them, getting rid of them, they can make the uh, the laptop thinner and lighter yeah. mm-hmm. and less expensive. Yes. So that was really the, the idea. Now, luckily, you can buy an external USB optical drive for as little as $15. Just going to Amazon, they're, they're available. And, um, you know, that's what I'd recommend. Now, the good news is if you look, you can still buy laptops with, Internal optical drive. They're still available. They're just getting harder to find. Mm-hmm. But I, but I tell you, I think I'd go with the external drive because you, you'll get a laptop that's thinner and lighter, and um, and probably a little bit cheaper. Right. So, good question and uh, good luck with your new laptop. We got an email from Jim in Arizona. Dear Tech Talk, I'm an admin of a large Facebook group that has over sixty thousand members. So it's a great group that discusses mindfulness living. Now, the problem is that the person who created the group has stopped making useful posts, and now they post spam. Huh? I got a feeling that they're selling posts on the group to a third-party business as advertising, and they're making money off the group. Now, my question is, is there a way to kick that person out of the group and ban him? Everything I've read says that I cannot ban the creator of the group. Well, um, Jim, you're exactly right. You cannot ban the creator of a group, even if you, uh, even if you're also an admin. The creator of the group can never be banned, and I think Facebook is correct in 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 preventing that. Because can you imagine? You create a group, and then you invite other admins to to help you manage the group, and then the admins that you invite they kick you out of the group, and and you lose control of the group. It's so like an
3: admin coup d'état.
2: It would be an ad, admin coup d'état. That's right. It, it could be uh,
3: bloodless overtake overthrow.
2: Blood bloodless overthrow. Yeah, it could be uh, it could be like a Facebook mutiny. Could be another. <laughs> so I I think Facebook's exactly right about that. They they you should not be able to to ban the creator. Now so what you should do, uh, just create your own group. So you can go and you can create your own group, um, and you can start. Uh, and then once you can go back, you can invite members of the old group to join your new group. And since you're an admin of the old group, you can. You 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 can do you know mass invites to everybody in the group, and if everybody is as fed up with this guy as you are, (laughs) uh, I think a lot of people go form another group. Yeah uh, yeah, I think people are just going to switch over to your group, and then you you'll carry on, and then the spammer can be in his own group with nobody reading it. I think that's your only option, Mm -hmm. and um, I do think Facebook has the right policy there on. Banning admins. We've got an email from Wendy in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, I've got a Samsung smart TV, and my friend told me that she heard in the news that viruses were hitting smart TVs, and we need to scan them for viruses. I didn't even know a TV could get a virus. Is that true? Huh. And how can I run a scan? Well, smart TVs can indeed. I mean, they're, they're actually computers. They, they can get viruses. Now, it happens that, you know, there haven't been many viruses written for it, so it's not really a problem but you see the NSA had a toolkit that you know that was actually hacked and released to the public and that toolkit kit w- allowed you to install malware on a TV and use the built-in amplifier built-in microphone on the on the TV to listen in for spying oh wow so you know so they would just you know everybody had a smart TV and they all have built-in microphones and so they could just go in and they basically could 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 plant a microphone in the living room simply by taking over the TV. So that's the only like application of malware that I've that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Now there was a news report that your friend probably is responding to. Uh, Samsung recently sent out a tweet warning owners uh, of their smart TV to scan their TV for viruses. They sent it out, and the tweet created huge panic among all the users. Nobody knew how to do it. They said, what should I do? Finally, because there was such a it was such a PR nightmare, Samsung removed that tweet. Now uh, if you I, I don't really think it's worth scanning your TV for a virus, uh, but if you really want to do that, uh, you'd have to go to the manual for your Samsung Smart TV and they'll tell you exactly how to do the scan. We got an email from Lois in Erie, Kansas. Dear Tech Talk, we have two computers in our home office, but only one USB printer. Is there a way to print from both computers without actually having to switch the print cable from one computer to the other? Love the podcast, Lois in Erie. Well, you're in luck, Lois. There's a device called the USB print auto sharing switch, and it makes it very easy to connect a single printer to two or more computers without ever having to switch the cable again. Now, this device monitors the USB connections, and when it detects that one of them is sending a print job, it automatically connects that USB port to the printer. You can get either a two-port or a four-port model, depending on how many you need. Installation is easy because you just plug it into the printer and then plug it into the computers. Now, some models, the cheaper models, have a physical switch. Don't get that one. (laughs) <laughs> because then that's a pain in the neck. What you want to do is get the automatic switch and you you'll pay about 7 or 8 dollars more, but it is definitely worth it. Now, for instance, the IO Gear 2, the IO Gear 2 port USB automatic printer switch is only 24.99 on Amazon. So, I mean, it's, yeah. I I just get the auto yeah, switch. Sure. That's the two port. I, I think that's the one you need. Listen, we love your emails. You do indeed. Email us at at Stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can.
3: That's a, that's a very good point, as yes. I turn the music down a little bit. I'm st- stunned <laughs> by the music. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m., uh, 8 to 20 a.m., uh, 1035 FMHD2 and 1039 FMHD2. You can watch us do the uh, show by downloading the Periscope device to your uh, app to your device and uh, following us at WFED Tech Talk. Actually, Doc, we have somebody watching us this morning in Israel. So good morning to you, sir. We'll be back with more uh, Tech Talk Radio right after this.
2: Sophie Wilson is a computer scientist best known for designing the instruction set of the ARM processor. That would be the RISC instruction set, which I'll explain a little bit later. And that ARM processor and the RISC instruction set is used in almost all mobile phones. Wilson was born 1957 in Leeds, England. She studied computer science and mathematics at the University of Cambridge. And, in ni- and during her break in 1977, this was like... Like a spring break, she designed a micro a computer using a uh, using a microprocessor chip, and she created a system to automatically control feed for cows, because she, you know she <laughs> she lived out in the country and this was a problem. You got you got to you got to you know feed the cows at a certain time, so uh, she decided, well, why don't I just create a system that will automatically feed the cows at the appropriate time? So she did that on the spring break just for the fun of it. And a year later, in 1978, she joined Acorn Computers after she designed another device that would prevent cigarette lighter sparks from triggering payouts on fruit machines. What? <laughs> Apparently, there was a, there was some electronic interference, and they would do get get the spark get interference from the cigarette lighter sparks to trigger payouts on fruit machines. I, I don't know what kind of fruit what machines they... What is a they, fruit machine? I have no idea.
3: Okay, let's check that yeah, out, I have shall we? no that's idea what a what fruit I'm machine is. That's what I'm here for, and that's, either to add to or decrease the confusion. A, now, in
2: 1978, uh, uh, she joined Acorn Computers, as I said, and now it turned out that the computer design that she used for the electronic control of cow feed was actually a very novel computer. And And when she got to Acorn... Uh, Chris Curry and Herman Hauser decided to build that processor and so they built the Acorn One and that was the first of a line of computers sold by the company. Now in July of 1981 Wilson extended the Acorn Adams basic programming language for the Acorn Proton which was used for BBC Computer Education Project. They wanted a super cheap computer that they they could teach uh, computer science to kids and uh, Wilson and Steve Ferber built the BBC prototype in one week. Wilson designed the system using circuit boards and components from Monday to Wednesday. By Thursday evening, the prototype had been built, but the software had bugs, requiring her to stay up all night and in, in, into early Friday, debugging it. Uh, and they, they developed this pro- this prototype. BBC loved it. The Proton became the BBC Micro... And its BASIC evolved into BBC BASIC. Over a million BBC micros were sold and used in thousands of U.K. schools. Then, in 1983, Wilson began designing the instruction set for one of the first reduced instruction set computer processors, RISC processors, reduced instruction set computer processors. It was called the ACORN RISC machine, A-R-M. Now the reason that they wanted to have reduced instruction sets is that uh, you've got complex instruction sets that it takes multiple clock cycles to actually execute the command. But with a reduced instruction set, you can actually complete the um, command with one clock cycle. So you're better you're, you're better able to pipeline processes. You can simplify things. It takes less processing RAM. Uh, and so you can, uh, and so it's a much more efficient, uh, efficient way to go, and uh, and so she sort of came up with this idea, and she designed the first risk language, and and this was really quite evolutionary. This was 1983. The ARM one, the Acorn RISC machine ARM one was delivered 26 April 1985, and it worked the first time right out of the chute. The processor type was later to become one of the most successful IP cores, Intellectual Property Cores, which is licensing CPU core to companies for, for incorporating into devices. The one that was used, then they built another processor for the, uh, th- they built a second processor for the B- BBC Macro. They, and it was the um, first generalized home computer based on their own, own arm architecture this was also very successful and it was distributed by bbc to the schools this particular one is called archimedes that was in 1987 apple's apple computer's first personal digital assistant the newton used the arm processor steve jobs likes it. like this arm processor the arm processor core is now used in thousands of products around the world from mobile phones to tablets to digital televisions and video games. The number of ARM processors, processor cores, now shipped that have been shipped exceeds 30 billion. That's more than four ARM processors for every person on Earth. Wow. That's a lot of penetration. Mm-hmm. Now, Wilson went on to design the Acorn Replay, a video architecture for Acorn machines. By the way, Acorn uh Created another company called Acorn Holdings, and Acorn Holdings then licenses the ARM architecture to other companies. So they they basically hold the IP, and they just continually you know update it, and then they they license it out, and everybody licenses their ARM. Uh, they don't really make the processors now, but they but the design is licensed out, and it's uh, and it's just very very popular. It took almost ten years for the ARM processors to take off, because originally everything was writing for complex instruction set computers, CISC, and like the Intel chips or CISC. And so the, all the software supported CISC, and no, the, the software did not support RISC architecture. So it took about 10 years for enough software to be developed and operating systems to be developed that that actually it, it could get very strong market penetration. Now, um Sophie Wilson is now the Director of IC Design in Broadcom's Cambridge, UK campus. She's the Chief Architect of Broadcom's Fire Path Processor. In 2012, she was awarded the Fellow Award by the Computer History Museum for her work with Steve Fulton on the BBC Computer and the ARM Processor Architecture. In 2013, Wilson was elected as a Fellow to the prestigious Royal Society. She enjoys photography and is involved in a the local theater group where she likes to design costumes and sets and occasionally acts in plays. So there you go. Sophie Mary Wilson, She's one of, she is a very influential person because she came up with the idea and designed the first risk processor.
3: Okay, you want to know what a fruit, fruit machine is? Yes. It's a slot machine. That's what they call them in Great Britain.
2: A because, slot machine because
3: you know you get cherries, whatever, bananas. Oh. On the on the display. I see. That's the fruit machine. And cherry, that, cherry, cherry. Bingo! You get the the jackpot.
2: And so apparently, you could. There was a way to use a cigarette lighter to trigger, to trigger, a, trigger payout. a payout. <laughs> exactly.
3: Pretty okay, good. Okay, now
2: it makes sense. Now it makes sense.
3: <laughs> fruit machine. What in the world is that? All right. I hope you're paying attention to what we were just talking about because the knowledge we've just imparted upon you, more specifically, Dr. Scherz, can be turned into free food. It is time to play the pop quiz here on Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2 and 103.9 FM HD 2. More of the show right after this.
5: featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr.
3: Richard
2: Schertz. Yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please sit down, sit down. They're well-behaved.
3: I think they all want to get off to their July 4th vacation. They're
2: ready ready to rock and roll for July 4th. Mm -hmm. Now, this, of course, is not just a radio show. This is a classroom of the airways, and we're going to do an assessment to see whether the audience has been listening. And if you get the correct answer to our pop quiz, our assessment tool, you'll get an A for this particular class, plus you'll get tickets to fine dining at one of our uh, dining rooms. Earlier in the show, I talked about Mary Sophie Mary Wilson. Of course, she is the she designed the instruction set of the ARM processor, which has become a revolutionary processor for small mobile devices. Now, when she was in school during Easter break, though, she built a microcomputer for a particular application. What was that application?
3: All right,
5: there's the question. If you know the answer to today's question? Well, good for you, smarty pants. Step two is to pick up your phone and give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're listening to us while watching the BBC with the sound down in Canada, call us on the wildcard line. 877-936-9333. Anyone else calling from anywhere else may dial us on the international line. 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard
2: Ah, Thank you very much. Uh, Let's talk about ransomware again. It's in the news every week. A second Florida city has been hit by ransomware, and they've agreed to pay the hackers the ransom. Remember, last week we had another Florida city down there, and now this one is this particular city, Lake City. It's a small Florida city with a population of 65,000, was hit by ransomware uh, last week on June 10th, and the city uh, described it as a triple threat. Now, despite the the IT staff disconnecting all the systems within 10 minutes of detecting the attack, the ransomware strain infected almost all the computers with the exception of the police and fire departments, Mm. which ran on a separate network. Now, the ransom demand was made one week after the infection, and the hackers reached out directly to the city's insurance provider, and they negotiated a ransom payment of 42 bitcoins, which is about um, $65,000, which is about $500,000. Yeah. And this week, the city council authorized to pay $500,000 to get the encryption key so they could get their files back. Uh, the payment is estimated to be between $400,000 and $500,000. Uh, the IT staff is now working to recover their data after receiving a decryption key. So they actually got the decryption key back, so they're going to be able to do that. By the way, Baltimore decided not to pay the hackers, so they're still having problems up there.
3: They are, and what, what is it, 17 17- million dollars they've paid so far to, to try to fix the system.
2: To try to fix the system. Well which
3: they would have had to do anyway, in all fairness. They'd have to fix the They'd system. have
2: to do that anyway. But they but they did save now Baltimore's ransom was only seventy two thousand dollars. Right. So they did save seventy two thousand dollars. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you can look at it that way. <laughs> um we don't have a winner yet. Or oh, wait a minute, do we? We do have a winner. Okay. We'll let Andrew why don't you uh, well okay we know who it is. All right, here we go. <laughs> Sorry, Doc. It's, it's summertime, right? Yes. Yes, oh, we're losing our minds over here. Maybe I never had one. Let's go to line numero uno. This is Andrew. No, and Andrew, answered the phone. It's <laughs> Lewis, who's calling us from Rockville. Good morning, Lewis. How are you, sir? Good morning, sir. Yes. Excellent. Dr. Good, Dr. Schertz, go ahead and ask yeah, the question, please. Earlier in the show,
2: we talked about Sophie Wilson. She, of course, was the creator of the risk instruction set for the ARM processor. But while she was in school, she took off for Easter break and designed a microcomputer for a particular application. What was that application?
4: To feed the cows. That is, that is
2: correct. correct.
3: <laughs> we have a correct answer. Very good. Uh, Lewis, hang on a second. We're going to send you back to uh, Andrew, and he will uh, give us, uh, take your information and um, uh, get the, your information from uh, you. I'm looking for the right song here. Where did it go? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a bit of a mess this morning. I'm so very sorry. Let's do this this way. That's the music we needed to play. That indicates that we have a winner. Okay. All now, right.
2: now we've got it.
3: There you go. Wow. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Fifteen hundred AM, 1035 three five FM HD two, and 1039 three nine FM HD two. More of the show, such as it is, this morning, coming up in just a moment.
1: Be right back.
0: If it's technology it's Tech Talk Radio. IT
4: trends, software, the internet and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Shirts of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
2: Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Here's the idea of the week. A nonprofit Wi-Fi mesh network in New York City. This is a, just a clever idea. It's a community-run operation. It's named the New York City Mesh. And its mission is to deliver better, cheaper broadband service to New York City. Because, you know, we got the problem that the, the telcos kind of have a, you know, a, um, a monopoly on, on broadband delivery, and they charge a lot of money for it. And there are data caps and all sorts of things, and they just want to get rid of that. It's a locally owned nonprofit, and it's engaging in a dramatic expansion to deliver more Broadband alternatives to, um, to the big ISPs. Now, with the installation of a new super node, they, the New York City mesh is greatly expanding its coverage to a much broader area in western Brooklyn, as well as lower Manhattan. So this super node, how it actually works, they, they actually uh, transmit the Wi-Fi. They've got a big Wi-Fi antenna that is connected to high-speed fiber, and then people that are around that big Wi-Fi antenna, which is called a super node, they'll put a router or they'll put an antenna in their window facing that, and so they can actually connect to all of the um, buildings around in in that area. And it works really well. It was born out of a frustration uh, that with traditional with traditional telcos back in 2013. Now it's it's run by a bunch of volunteers and donors who dedicate time, money, and bandwidth in order to build the infrastructure. Initially, the mesh, mesh, network, mesh network was powered by a single supernode antenna located on Pearl Street in Manhattan. The gigabit fiber-fed antenna connected to 300 buildings where members could mount uh, routers on the rooftop near a window, and then these local nodes in turn connect to an Internet exchange point within the building to get to people that, that couldn't actually see the antenna out their window. So what's called a mesh now this they do not have any data caps. they don't have no charges, you don't pay anything. There are no monthly charges at all. However, it's uh, it's funded by contributions. So they recommend that if you're just an individual member, a residential member, that you donate twenty to fifty dollars a month if you can afford it, and if you're a business, you donate a hundred dollars a month. But in fact is, it's it's not actually required that you donate at all. But people are so appreciative of it. That they get enough donations that, that they can expand it and make it better. Now, when you initially join the New York City Mesh, you pay hundred and ten dollars for the Wi-Fi router and a rooftop antenna, and you ch- you you pay a fifty-dollar installation fee. They'll they'll come out and install the antenna, and then you don't have to pay anything after that unless you want to. I think that's just a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. Community-run Wi-Fi network. Mm-hmm. Google Maps has got some new features that are pretty nice. they're They're not rolled out to everyone yet, but they're going to be rolling out over the next week or two. And uh, they have a feature called the speedometer. and it's going to be global in um, in a few weeks. And they're also they also have another feature where you can where you can uh, you can track, um, you can track where speed cameras camera traps are. And you can also report a car crash or a traffic jam they're trying to make google maps a- as good as Waze, which has crowdsourced information
3: well okay <laughs> i'll let you have it today. i know you, you don't you i don't, don't like Waze. you don't
2: like it i love Waze. since i've had Waze, not a single speeding ticket how many did you have before Waze? S- several uh, real
1: oh I yeah i did not oh, know oh, this oh, about yeah. you
2: oh yeah Mr. i had several Ledfoot. i had several and so but since Waze, boom my record is spotless. So here's the thing. There was a guy who was driving, he he had his uh, he was driving down the road with cruise control. He was going sixty five miles an hour. That was a speed limit. And he was passing a radar trap. And just at the time he was passing the radar trap, there was another car that whisked by him, passing him, going about ninety. So the police officer, thought he was the one going 90 and gave him a ticket for going 90 miles an hour. Uh-huh. Now, he said, hey, I wasn't going 90 miles an hour, and the police officer said, look, I got it on radar here. So the, the the trouble with radar is that it's it's a broad beam, and if you've got two cars in it, it's a judgment as to which car is actually going that speed. Now, one of the advantages of Google Maps is that it tracks your speed on all the roads that you're traveling. It keeps a history of it. Now this, now this might not be good if somebody, if 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 the police If you got a
3: lead foot. If it's you, for instance. Yeah, yeah, but I
2: mean, you know, you'd hate it if the police department would like uh, would like, um, you know, subpoena your speed record and then then after the fact give you speeding tickets for everything that showed up on that map. I don't think they
3: map. can do that. I don't think they can do that.
2: I don't. I don't think so. I, I think
3: they actually have to witness you doing
2: it before they. Yeah, I would.
3: Yeah, I, 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 that will be something. Because so, everybody would be looking at about a million speeding tickets.
2: So it's it's not on all the Google Maps yet, but but you can you you can check for it. You, to turn on the speedometer, you open up Google Maps and then you tap on the three stacked lines and scroll down to the bottom of your screen. Select settings, and then you tap navigation settings, and then you scroll down to driving options, and under driving options, you can toggle on speedometer. If you don't see the speedometer there, then it means you don't have it yet. But they're rolling it, it within a week or two. It'll be out everywhere. Now, if you want to also use it for, for 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 speed camera traps, you can do the same thing. You open Google Maps, type in the destination to start navigating, and then uh, then tap on the There's a speech bubble icon with a plus sign. Click on that, and then you can select mobile speed cameras. And then a pop-up message will say that you're adding a mobile speed camera. If you want, if you want to add it, but it's but then you know, you can help all of your other people, and you can also report a traffic jam or, or anything else. And and you basically tap, add a report, and you can select crash or showdown. So these are all new uh, features that are that are coming out into Google Maps as they try to morph Google Maps into being more ways-like. But I, I do like that sort of if you if if you're caught, I and mean, if you're really not speeding, and the and the police officer makes a mistake because there's another car in the field of view. Uh, I would be interested to know how the courts would accept this as data. Yeah. To prove you're right.
3: Yeah, I don't know. We have a question uh, from Blue Alligator on who's watching us on uh, Periscope. Uh-huh. He uh, he uh, has the speed on his Google Google Maps, but he lost the compass. Wonder what that means.
2: He lost the compass. He lost the
3: compass on on Google Maps. Hmm. Odd. Let's, let me see what I can – I'm going to go to Google Maps now and you see can, what it looks like. I'll, can, I'll do a little recon that. That's here. probably
2: an option, probably an option setting that you yeah, can have. Yeah, let's see. All right. Now, now, go ahead. Russia has denied the role in Israeli airport GPS jamming. They denied it. They said we had nothing to do with it. Well, they also denied that they interfered with the 2016 election. So Russia denies everything. Since early June, GPS signals at the airport have been unreliable for pilots and planes – the missing navigation data had a significant impact on airport operations. It's it had not caused any um, any accidents yet because the pilots use the alternative landing system. It's this you know it's this uh, it's this landing system that's that's not based on GPS. The GPS only affects aircrafts in the sky over the airport and not ground based. Now they said the problem is that uh, somebody has put up a GPS spoofing signal, and it and it's near the airport, it's pointed where the airplanes are, and it sends out incorrect location data. Now, this can mean that receivers on the airplane sometimes report locations miles away from where they actually are. So if if they'd land with GPS, it would be a problem. The disruption was linked to electronic warfare systems used by Russia to protect planes in, uh, in an air base in Syria. The military base is about 350 kilometers from Ben-Gurion Airport. So the, the Russians have been using GPS spoofing in order to keep planes from bothering their assets in Syria. So they are quite uh, – qu- and they also use GPS spoofing when they, uh, when they were invading Crimea. Now, despite the eni- uh, denials, Russia is known to have a long history of involvement in GPS spoofing and jamming. Uh, there's a document that lists over 10,000 separate instances of GPS re- re- disruption, and the Russia was a pioneer in this technique. I think this is going to be a bigger and bigger problem because yeah. our, our defense systems report on GPS. You, can you imagine if all the GPS would go down, none, none of the navigation systems would work? And um, it would be— it And would you'd be, be as-
3: getting speeding tickets left and right. Ways would be down.
2: Ways would be down, yeah. I, you know, I'd, I'd probably. You'd have to park the car. I would have issues. I would have issues. I know, but I would, I would certainly try to do it. Now, the Chinese hackers are linked to global attacks on telcos. This, this is, uh, I mean, this, you know, you know, electronic warfare and uh, and cyber espionage is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. The campaign was dubbed Operation Soft Cell. It's been active since 2012, and it. According to Cyber Reason, an endpoint security company based in Boston, the attackers attempted to steal data stored on active directory servers of the organizations. This is where, this is where you got all your, you've got all your – it's stored in active directory. That's what Microsoft uses to store usernames, passwords, as well as other personal identifiable information. They've got billing data, call record data, credentials, email servers, geolocation of users, and more – and based on the tools used in the TAC, such as Poison Ivy Rat, it's like a, um, that, that, that's, that's like a remote, a, that's like something that, that basically uh, takes over, a rat takes over the, uh, the computer. <laughs> yeah. Not
0: and good.
2: then the, the tactics and techniques and procedures deployed by the attackers was likely run by AP-10, the notorious group of Chinese hackers, The U.S. Justice Department indicted two members of APT-10 for conspiracy to computer intrusions and to commit fraud and aggravated identity theft. The Haggers attacked organization in waves launched over a period of months. During that time, they were able to map target networks, compromise credentials, and that enabled them to compromise critical assets such as production and database servers. The attack was widespread not just for individuals, but also for organizations and countries alike. This type of attack would greatly help, for instance, Huawei in their fight to control as much of the 5G space as possible. The attacks didn't appear to have any super secret stuff. It was uh, no super, super secret hacking tools. It was all hacking tools that were off the shelf. You could teach a college student to use it, but... The telco systems were vulnerable enough. So this is becoming a bigger and bigger problem.
3: Doc, let's take a break okay. here, if you don't mind. Okay. It is Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio. Heard on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM 2, 1039 FM 2. Watch us do the programming, uh, program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk.
0: If it's technology,
4: it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Shirts of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
2: Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Let's talk about the top 10 jobs in 2019 for IT. With cloud computing, mobile applications, massive amounts of data, all kinds of software, that you know runs the World Wide Web, social media. There is a lot of opportunity there for people entering the IT field. Now, the employment growth, and I'm going to talk about employment growth information as well as salaries. The employment growth comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics for 20, 2016 to 2026. The salary statistics come from payscale.com and reflect the salaries as of March 2018. So the number one job is mobile application developer. You'd think that makes a lot of sense because yeah. so many mobile applications. The employment growth is 30%. The median salary is 72000 Now, mobile application developers create applications for mobile devices such as iPhone and Android. That's the number one. The number two, as you might expect, information security analyst. Information security analysts, they develop and implement computer security strategies and systems to protect vital information from computer crime and cyber warfare. And you can see with all the stories today why this would be very important. That has employment growth of 28% and a median salary of $70,000. The number three job, number third job, is web developers. Web developers collect or create content and plan website layouts and navigation as well as coding for web pages. They also test and optimize the website for user experience. The median salary there is $58,000, and the employment growth is 15% a year. Cloud solution architect is the next most popular job, most lucrative job, Cloud, cloud solution architects design solutions for companies seeking to move their IT infrastructure and services from on-premise to cloud-based storage solutions. The median salary there is $120,000. Ah. Yeah, not bad. And the employment the employment growth is uh, 12%. Applications architect are pretty good. Application architect, they ensure that individual software projects follow the organization's application development methodology and parameters. They also ensure that the project fits the company's technology infrastructure and business strategy. Application architects earn around $107,000, and the employment growth rate there is 12%. DevOps engineers are the next one. That's development operations engineer. DevOps engineers... So function is kind of a jack-of-all-trades in regard to database and information systems and organizations. They basically make certain that the databases and IS systems are always functioning. They earn uh, median salaries 91000 That's an 11% uh, projected growth rate, annual projected growth rate. The next one, data scientists. Data scientists gather application data for a variety of organizations like corporations and government agencies. Medium salary there is 90000 The um, employment growth Rate is 11.5%. By the way, all of these jobs are, are supported by the kind of programs that we have at Stratford University in IT. We've got both networking programs. We've got cloud-based programs. We've got cybersecurity programs. And almost all of these jobs require either a bachelor or a master's degree in, 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 a, in an IT discipline. Information technology manager, they oversee the IT needs of an organization. Kind of, they they manage all the technical guys. Mm-hmm. That median salary is 84k. That's an 11 percent growth rate. A business intelligence developer is actually number uh, nine on the list. Now, business intelligence they oversee the databases and information systems with the goal of optimizing storage implementation and the flow of data in the corporation. So, you know, I mean, inf- you know, data is not useful unless you can analyze it visualize it and use it to make decisions. And so business intelligence developers actually help make that data useful for critical business decisions. That median salary, $78,000. The employment growth rate's 11.5%. The last one on the list that we're going to talk about this morning is database administrator. They're responsible for organizing and managing the organization's data, making sure the data is accurate, available, and that the and that the performance of the systems meet the organizational requirements. That median salary is seventy-one thousand, and that has an employment growth rate of eleven point five percent. So there's a lot of opportunity out there in IT. And you just need either a bachelor's or a master's. None of these uh, jobs really require a PhD.
3: I, you know, when I look into this, I, the I figured the salaries might be a little higher, although these are median salaries. Those are median but salaries, especially information security analysts. I figured those folks would make a lot more because that really is the future, isn't it?
2: That is the that is really the future. That is the truth. But these are median salaries, and mm-hmm. so so you know, like if you go to a metropolitan area like Washington, it's going to be more. It's going to be higher because gotcha. those are across the whole country. Gotcha.
3: So, uh, talking about the age of the electric flight. Yeah, let's it- take
2: the age of the this. Now, this is actually interesting. This, there. uh, this, um, there's an Israeli firm, Aviation, not Aviation, Aviation, E-vi- Aviation. They built an electric airplane called Alice. <laughs> now, All
3: right, already I'm out. <laughs> Alice,
2: Alice will carry nine passengers for up to 650 miles. At 10,000 feet, going 275, 76 miles per hour, and it's expected to enter service in 2022. Alice is a non-conventional-looking plane. It's powered by three rear-facing push propellers. They've got one in the back of the plane. They got one at the at the end of each wing, so they got three push propellers on the thing. It, That's it, interesting. It, if you look at it, they got one at the end of each wing, and then one in the rear. And of course, the, this this of course is all designed. They, they needed three push propellers because, um, you know, they they were trying to distribute the load. And, and these are all and it's all runoff batteries. Now, now the plane that really was designed around the propulsion system. They said it, it's going to take three. You know, they, they had batteries and they had to, they had to have a range of 650 miles. They had to have the propulsion system, so they built a plane that would that would work this thing out. Now, the um, Th- this particular system, it's going to be um, – it's, it, it's going to uh, – um, it's, it's basically going to uh, be used by small-haul uh, companies. And companies are already lining up to buy this thing because, mm-hmm. because you see, it's um, – th- this is the thing. The, the fuel cost is uh, – for instance, if you take a turboprop SESMA caravan if, and if you do a 100-mile flight – the fuel is around $400. If you use this electric plane and take the same 100-mile flight, your fuel is 8 to $12. That's a big difference. That is a big difference. That's a big difference. Say the uh, R- Rolls-Royce Airbus and Siemens are, work- are working on the eFan X program, which will have a 2-megawatt electric motor mounted on a BAE jet. It's set to fly in 2021. So there's somebody else working on this. Investment bank USB, which predicts the aviation set, predicts that the aviation sector will quickly switch to hybrid and elective aircraft for regional travel, and that the eventual demand for there will be an eventual demand for 550 hybrid airliners each year between 2028 wow. and 2040. So actually the the advances in battery technology that certainly driven by the electric car have actually made it into the uh, into the aircraft
3: i wo- i wonder well i guess this is risky when you're dealing with a- aviation uh, if they could use solar power somehow because you've got that you know that all that space up there on a wing um, if if you could use solar for auxiliary power while you're in flight you know
2: yeah i don't think it could have enough capacity <laughs> i mean i i just don't think now, now the prospects for the electric long haul flights are not very rosy because you you'd basically have no room for, no room for the passengers, you just have you'd be you'd have a flying elevator, uh, a, a flying, flying bat- battery, a flying exactly. battery. I'm so look- this is I think the sweet spot here is about 600 miles.
3: Yeah, I'm looking at this um a picture of it is a very interesting looking airplane. It's very space age. It's a it's got a V-tail in the rear, which yeah. is uh, uh reminiscent of the old Moonies uh which are which are very popular. Um, single engine yeah. general aviation but that's 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 very interesting i am trying to figure out how many people this will carry Nine. it will it carry holds n- nine? nine people wow that's that's really cool nine
2: people including the pilot and see the other i think the other application for uh for um all electric vehicles are, are going to be regional trucks mm-hmm. regional mm-hmm. trucks because the, the the problem is with you know when you when you're is the charge time on the battery. Yes. And so, but you, if you got a regional truck, because, you know, you're, you you can get a range, you know, Tesla's building the truck here, that'd be, you know, maybe 400 mile range. So you could actually t- do a round trip, do a job for the day, come back and, and charge back at your base station. The
3: problem with that is traffic. And if you get a day like, you know, yesterday, we were talking about traffic yesterday, yeah. it was so bad. You get stuck in traffic. I mean, and there are a lot of trucks that were stuck in when I was stuck in yesterday. Four hours idling, all of a sudden the thing dies.
2: But I can tell you the I also think trucks are going to be the first real application for autonomous vehicles mm-hmm. because they they'll they'll be able to run autonomously on the on the um, um, you know on the highways quite easily. I think that's going to be the next big really big push and and actually this this uh this electric airplane surprised me because I was thinking this would this would never be used for air, for for air for the uh, for air, airfare. I air, wonder
3: how long it takes to charge it because, you know, a lot of these jets in regional service, they, they they get someplace, they unload, they vacuum it out, they fuel it up, and they're back on another run.
2: Could be a problem. Yeah. I could mean, be because problem. these
3: things run all day.
2: They run all day. I mean, you know, I think they're going to eventually have to get removable power packs where they just, pull out, they just yeah. pull out a battery and pop it in. And it's just like loading it's on – It's like a lo- giant toy changing and, the battery. And it's in. just like it'll just be a pallet, and it'll be like they're loading luggage onto the flight.
3: That's, 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 that's interesting. But that's – I wonder how big these, these batteries are that are on this thing.
2: I don't know. They didn't really give that. You know, Microsoft has been uh, – got 30 seconds here. About yeah. that. Yeah, Microsoft is deleting a massive facial recognition database. They had one that had 10,000 images, and they used it to train facial recognition software. And, um, and they used it to train systems that are operated by the police and the military. But Microsoft is worried about the privacy violations of facial recognition. So in order to make a statement, because they want Congress to put some legislation out, they deleted their database of nearly 10 million faces so it would not be available to anyone out there because they don't think that face recognition should be used so widely. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. In addition to that, go to the Stratford University website at stratford.edu, check out the programs, and tell them you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio.
0: Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.